grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the love of God and of the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zolsdorf and another podcast. We welcome as our guest today, Venerable Fulton J. Sheen. He will talk to us about patriotism. As I speak today, it is Independence Day in these United States, the 4th of July, 2016. Today at the wonderful website, The Catholic Thing, I saw excerpts of a piece by Fulton Sheen on patriotism. As I have done in the past, I will read the whole thing for you. They published excerpts, but I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, first, some of you might not know who Fulton Sheen is. There are some of you younger people out there who haven't been exposed to him. Well, who was this guy? Fulton Sheen was born in Illinois in 1895. Then he attended the St. Paul Seminary in Minnesota. My not-so-alma mater, at least back in the day, it was you know, pretty awful in the 1980s. And he was ordained to the priesthood in 1919. After studying at the Catholic University of America, he went to Belgium to the University of Leuven for his doctorate. And in 1930, Sheen started a Sunday night radio show called The Catholic Hour. Uh, later, in 1951, once he was a bishop, uh, he had a television show called Life is Worth Living. And he won an Emmy for that show in 1952, and it was one of the most popular TV shows of its era. Paul VI made Sheen an archbishop in 1969. Eventually, he became uh, Bishop of Rochester. Um, and he died in 1979 and is now buried in the crypt of St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan. He was declared venerable by Pope Benedict XVI in 2012. His cause for beatification has been somewhat controversial since there has been a dispute over his body between the Archdiocese of New York and the Diocese of Peoria and various members of his family. But let's put that all aside by for now. Our interest today, this Independence Day, is to hear Sheen's thoughts on patriotism. He spoke out the following essay on his Catholic Hour radio program on the 20th of February in 1938. Now, in order to understand this essay well, we have to put it into some kind of context. As you listen to it, remember that we are in February of 1938. Stalin is in Moscow. Hitler is in Berlin. Hitler, as a matter of fact, Time magazine made Hitler their man of the year in 1938. Just a couple months before, in December of 1937, was 
the Battle of Nanking, or the Rape of Nanking, as it's called. Japanese soldiers subsequently kill 300,000 Chinese in three months there. Uh, in January, a month before, Benny Goodman had his first concert in Carnegie Hall. Uh, there was also an incredible aurora borealis visible as far south as Gibraltar. Some people connected that uh, aurora to some of the Fatima uh, predictions, and it certainly was on the, the very threshold of World War II. In early February, Hitler abolished the war ministry, and he took direct control of the growing war machine on the very day that Sheen uh, gave this essay on the radio, um, Anthony Eden resigned as the British Foreign Secretary uh, because of major disagreements that he had had with the Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain about the best policy to follow um, concerning Italy. La forza delle nostre armi è indubbiamente grande. As a matter of fact, uh, just a little while ago, uh, Mussolini had visited um, Hitler in Germany. And we are only a month out right now from the Austrian Anschluss. Und damit den Weg in die Zukunft des deutschen Volkes zu verriegeln. Ich proklamiere nunmehr für dieses Land seine neue Mission. Sie entspricht dem Gebot, dass einst die deutschen Siedler aus allen Gauen des Altreichs hierher gerufen hat. Die älteste Ostmark des deutschen Volkes soll von jetzt ab das jüngste Bollwerk and Mussolini would then take over the Italian military. And, you know, this only, only, 12, only 11 months ago, Pius XI issued Mitbrenner Zorga with burning concern uh, about the church and the German Reich. I read that for you in another podcast. So in these United States, what's going on? Uh, well, culturally, at least, uh, if you're going to the movie theaters uh, about the time Sheen is talking, you're, you might be going with your children to see Walt Disney's new movie, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Less than a month before Keen's broadcast, Arturo Toscanini conducted the NBC Symphony Orchestra on the radio for the first time right around Christmas. It was a famous Christmas concert. That relationship would go on for another 17 years. You'd conduct the NBC Symphony Orchestra on the radio. If you're a reader, you're probably reading John Steinbeck's novel of Mice and Men about the Great Depression. 
Um, if you are going to movie, uh, if you're going to the theater, for example, in New York, on February 4th, Thornton Wilder's play Our Town premiered. Now, as you listen to Sheen's essay, as you remember the context, also tune your ears for his comments about pietas, piety, which is dutifulness towards God, and it also is love for God, neighbor, and country. Listen for his comments about communists and schools and professors, as if anything has changed. You know, plus ça change, right? Keep in mind that communism and Nazism, even to a certain extent, had strong toeholds in these United States. Uh, that's something that people don't think about these days. They had strong parties, like Nazis in the United States, who were having rallies. Uh, before the Second World War, the very things that we would have to defeat abroad were rising here. Uh, I think they're still rising in a lot of ways. That's one of the reasons why I chose to read out the whole thing rather than just cut out the more um, time-bound bits. Because I think we're back in the same boat now, frankly. We've got different players, uh, maybe. and um, uh, But I think we have the same set of winds tides and waters. Sheen rightly points out the roots of freedom. Uh, he says that we are, of course, created in the image and likeness of God. That's why we have rights. We are in God's image. States or groups did not give us our rights. Listen to how Sheen speaks about Catholic schools. It's very interesting. He uses that as an example of the patriotism of Catholics and their contribution. We put our money where our mouths are. At least we did. This is back in the 30s. Remember, this is a time when the Catholic Church was building schools and hospitals. It was, it was an in incredible time of building of this huge infrastructure that people are still using today. Uh, remember that Catholics were, and at that time, uh, suspect in American political life. And that suspicion would continue through after the war and, and up into the, the 50s and the 60s. Remember how John F. Kennedy you know, kind of trampled on his Catholicism in his bid to become president of the United States. And even today, thus setting a precedent for virtually all of our really big so-called Catholic uh, poles today who are traitors to their Catholic faith, and fecklish bishops and priests stand by and do nothing to help them save their souls or avoid scandal on a national level. In any event, back to Sheen, we contribute because we love God and we love neighbor and we love our country. We are patriots. So now let's listen to Fulton Sheen's essay on patriotism which was originally delivered on the 20th of February 1938 during a radio broadcast of the Catholic Hour.
the National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the National Council of Catholic Men, presents the Catholic Hour. The treatise on patriotism in the writings of the greatest philosopher of all times, St. Thomas Aquinas, is to be found under the subject of piety. This at first may strike as strange those who think of piety as pertaining only to love of God. But once it is remembered that love of neighbor is inseparable from love of God, it is seen that love of our fellow citizens is a form of piety. In these days, when so many subversive activities are at work, a reminder of the necessity of loving our country is very much to the point. Consciously or unconsciously, our citizens are grouping themselves around the only two possible ultimate answers to the questions vexing our country. The first answer is that the essence of Americanism is revolution. The second answer is that the essence of Americanism consists in the recognition of the sacredness of human personality. First, let us consider the revolutionary theory. The communists, in their attempt to justify another revolution, are rewriting American history to suit the dialectics of Marx and Lenin. Their argument is this. America began with a revolution. The real descendants, then, of our national forefathers are those who believe in revolution. But the communists believe in revolutionary theory and practice, therefore they are the true Americans. In support of this thesis, the General Secretary of the Communist Party in the United States writes in his work, What is Communism? Quote, the revolutionary tradition is the heart of Americanism. We communists claim the revolutionary traditions of Americanism. We are the only ones who consciously continue those traditions and apply them to the problems of today. We are the Americans, and communism is the Americanism of the 20th century. Our American giants of 1776 were the international incendiaries of their day. They inspired revolutions throughout the world. The reactionaries will rise up against us. They will denounce us as Reds and revolutionists. Of this we need not be afraid. Revolution is the essence of the American tradition. End quote. Before passing on to the opposing theory concerning the essence of Americanism, it might be well to investigate the value of the communist theory. Is it logical? There probably is no one who uses even one of his intellectual lobes who cannot see the fallacy of the argument. First of all, to argue that because communists believe in revolution, therefore they are the heirs of the Revolutionary War, is just as stupid as to say that every American who wears a red coat is a descendant of an English soldier. Furthermore, since when does the Revolutionary War give a man the right to be a revolutionary? Does it give you and me the right to drive through red traffic lights, even though they are of the communist color? And why should revolution be the unique right of the communists? 
Why should it not be the right of everyone? For that is the meaning of revolution. Then every fool is entitled to be a revolutionary who would turn our country into a great free-for-all. It is no more true to say that communism is 20th century Americanism than it is true to say fascism is 20th century Americanism. For America never contemplated in its constitution a dictator, whether he be Bolshevik or fascist. If communism is 20th century Americanism, why does the Communist Party of the United States remain affiliated to the Communist International of Moscow? Why does it agree not to hold a Congress in the United States without the permission of the Communist Executive Committee of Moscow, according to Article 34 of its Constitution with Moscow? Why does it allow its candidate for president in the United States to become a member of the Moscow Presidium? Oh, how they would howl if any other candidate for president of the United States were even just an honorary member of the Nazis. Why did the Communist Party of the United States send delegates to the last Moscow Congress? Why did the official organ of the Communist International of Moscow say the book of the Secretary of the Communist Party in the United States was in complete accord with the new tactics of the Communist International of Moscow? Why did the leaders of the Communist Party in the United States on July 27th and 28th, 1935, stand with their feet in Moscow and cheer Stalin, the leader of world revolution? If an alliance with Moscow is 20th century Americanism, if revolution, violence, ruthless suppression of minorities, confiscation, purging of the old dross of society is 20th century Americanism, then how does America differ from Moscow? If America believed that communism were 20th century Americanism, our government would never have signed an agreement with Russia as it did in 1931, specifying that a commercial treaty did not give them the right to carry on the propaganda of the revolutionary Third International in this country. Russia has broken this agreement a thousand times over, and the reason we have done nothing about it is that American common sense has refused and will refuse to follow any system which in one day can execute seven generals of the army, three newspaper editors, two members of the cabinet, and all the governors of its states. If they insist on appealing to the American Revolution— we would remind them that it was a political revolution against a government across the sea, and not a civil war and class struggle against one another. In any case, what was the end and purpose of the Revolutionary War? It was to keep a foreign power out of America. The real heirs of the American Revolution are therefore not the Communists, but those who in 1938 attempt to keep another foreign power out of America, whether it be fascist or communist. Now, for an important warning about insidious propaganda. First, do not be fooled by communist propaganda that communism is democracy. 
democracy means the right of minorities to dissent, but communism permits neither minorities nor dissent. Furthermore, democracy believes in parliamentary reform. Communism believes in revolution. Democracy believes in the right of people to choose a leader. Communism believes in the right of a dictator to choose himself by purging his opposition. Communism calls itself a democracy to fool us, and here is the proof. American communists were told by Moscow to talk democracy to us, but not to believe in it. Dimitrov told the Americans, quoting Lenin, that, quote, it would be a fundamental mistake to suppose that the struggle for democracy can divert the proletariat from social revolution or obscure or overshadow it. Close quote. And Manuilski told them that the United Front tactics of talking democracy did not mean that communism had capitulated to democracy, and if they believed it did, they were downright scoundrels and hopeless idiots. If communism is democracy, then Stalin loves Trotsky. 2. Never defend America politically against communism without at the same time defending it against Nazism and fascism, for the simple reason that dictatorship and democracy do not go together. Beware of any organization for peace, for youth, for democracy, etc., the American League for Peace and Democracy, which condemns one without the other. If, for example, you find an organization con condemning fascism or Nazism without condemning communism, you may be sure that it is only a question of the pot calling the kettle black. As an American, you must be opposed to all dictators, fascist, Nazi, or communist. The communist trick is to accuse all who are opposed to communism of being fascists. This is not true. Because I dislike Russian caviar, it does not follow that I am mad about spaghetti or Wienerschnitzel. The tactics of communism in relation to fascism are very much like those of the prize-fighter who whispered to his opponent in a clinch that his shoestring was untied, whereupon the boxer let down his guard to tie his shoe and was cracked into oblivion. So too, communism says, look out for fascism. And as we become excited about it, communism worms its way in for the kill. The proper American attitude is to keep both out of America. Now, how to do that? The best way to keep fascism out of American life is to keep out communism. The reason is simple. Historically, fascism has arisen as a reaction against communism, as a counter-irritant to communism. It arose that way in Italy and Germany and in other countries. It did not arise as a separate and independent movement, but as an exaggerated response to the danger of violent revolution. That is why in Europe every forward growth of communism has produced a military dictatorship. Fascism is not first, but communism. Fascism is the reaction against communism. If then you want to keep fascism out of America, the best thing to do is to keep out communism. The danger of both grows proportionately, 
just as jails grow proportionately with criminals. It is not very likely that communism will ever gain a foothold in America simply because of the innate common sense of the American people. But we must avoid being stampeded by pressure groups, either fascist or communist. If communism grows, the American people may be stampeded into a fascist reaction. And if the fascist danger is exaggerated, we may be stampeded into a communist reaction. The best thing for us to do is to keep our heads and do our thinking according to American principles and not swallow sugar-coated propaganda. In other words, if you do not want to smell up your closets with fascist mothballs, then keep out the communist moths. For the moths come first, then the mothballs. If you do not want your parlor cluttered up with rat traps, then keep out the rats. If you do not want an anti-communist dictator, then you do not want a communist dictator. If you do not want a Hitler in America, then don't let the communists talk you into a Stalin. The essence of Americanism is not revolution, but the recognition of the sacredness of human personality and the inherent inalienable rights which every man possesses independently of the state. That is why, when our country began, our founding fathers were most anxious to find some basis for human rights, some foundation for human liberties, some guarantee of human personality which would be above the encroachment of tyranny and abuse. But where find the basis for the right of man to be his own master, captain of his own soul, free in his right to pursue his ultimate end with a free conscience? Where root and ground the right to own property as the extension of personality? Where find the rock of all liberties, which would be strong enough to withstand governments and powers and states which would absorb them as the monarchies did then and as certain dictatorships do now. For such a foundation, the fathers looked first to England. There the theory was advanced that our liberties and rights are rooted in Parliament. This theory they rejected on the ground that if Parliament gives rights and liberties, then the Parliament can take them away. Next, they looked to France, where it was held that the liberties and rights of man are rooted in the will of the majority. The Fathers equally rejected this on the ground that if the rights of man are the gift of the majority, then the majority can take away the rights of the minority. Where find the source of the liberties and the rights of man? On what stable foundation are they to be reared? What is their source? The answer they gave was the right one. They sought the foundations of man's rights and liberties in something so sacred and so inalienable that no state, no parliament, no dictator, no human power could ever take them away, and so they rooted them in God. Hence, our Declaration of Independence reads, All men are endowed by their Creator 
with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Note that the word used is unalienable. That means that these rights belong to the sacredness of human personality and are not the gift of the state or the dictator, whether fascist, Nazi, or communist. In other words, man's right to own private property, man's right to educate his own family, man's right to adore God according to the dictates of his conscience, come not from the Constitution, the government, parliament, or the will of the majority, but from God. Therefore, no power on earth may take them away. This is the essence of Americanism. Now, if the essence of Americanism is the sacredness of the human personality as created by God, who is doing most to preserve that Americanism? The schools that never mention his name? the universities and colleges that dissolve the deity into the latest ultimate of physics or biology, the professors who adjust their ethics to suit unethical lives? The answer, obviously, is that the forces that are building constructive Americanism are those that take practical cognizance of the existence of God. It is the non-religious schools which are out of the tradition of Americanism. They are on the defensive. In the beginning of our national life, practically all of our schools and colleges were religious schools. It was assumed by our Constitution and by its spirit that they would be religious. The reason was obvious. If human dignity and liberty come from God, then it follows that loss of faith in him means loss of faith in those liberties which derive from him. If we wish to have the light, we must keep the sun. If we wish to keep our forests, we must keep our trees. If we wish to keep our perfumes, we must keep our flowers. And if we wish to keep our rights, then we must keep our God. It is just as vain to try to keep triangles without keeping three-sided figures as to try to keep liberty without the spirit which makes man independent of matter and therefore free. We Catholics are taking religion so seriously in reference to our country that rather than see God perish out of our national life, we conduct 7,929 elementary schools and 1,945 high schools, employing 58,903 and 16,784 teachers, respectively. These schools represent an investment of about $750 million for elementary schools, and about $575 million for high schools. To keep the system going, we spend approximately $58 million a year on elementary schools, and approximately $10 million a year on high schools, and figuring on the basis of public 
school costs. We saved the taxpayers of the country an immediate $1 billion building program and, for maintenance, about $139,600,000 every year. Every cent of this money comes out of the pockets of Catholics. And why? Because we believe that the 2,102,889 children in Catholic elementary schools and 284,736 in Catholic high schools have a right to know the truth which makes them free. In other words, we take very seriously the Declaration of Independence, which derives the rights of man from God. In conclusion, true Americanism is the belief in the freedom of man as a divine derivative. For that reason, if we wish to keep pure Americanism, we must keep our religion. To this is to be added the important fact that dictatorships, such as the communistic, regard man only as a stomach to be fed by the state or as a tool to amass wealth for the state. Put men on that level and they need no religion any more than animals need religion or a monkey wrench needs liturgy. But to put them on that level is to depersonalize and mechanize them down to the very core of their being. A democracy needs religion, for it assumes that man has not only a stomach, but also a soul, which is the seat of his rights. And since that soul must be fed as well as the body, he must have religion. Democracy has to rely not on force, but on freedom and liberty. But freedom and liberty are inseparable from responsibility, and responsibility is inseparable from conscience, and conscience is inseparable from religion. It is our solemn duty as Catholics, therefore, to be conscious of our duty to America, and to preserve its freedom by preserving its faith in God against that group which would identify revolution with Americanism. We must protest that there are stars in our flag, not a hammer and sickle, to remind us that the destiny of human life is beyond the implements of daily toil, beyond the stars and the hid battlements of eternity with God. The communists want the flag all red. We are willing to have a little red in it, but we want some white and blue in it too. Then the red will not stand for revolution, but for sacrifice, and above all else a sacrifice inspired by the death of him who on Calvary proved the greatest love of all. Then the blue in it will remind us that we must be loyal to America, never daring to subvert it, even under the gentle name of United Front. Then the white in it will remind us that we must keep it pure and unmoscowized. But as we talk about patriotism, it might be well to remind ourselves that in a crisis like this, 
even devotion to the stars and stripes, is not enough to save us. We must look beyond them to other stars and stripes, namely, the stars and stripes of Christ, by whose stars we are illuminated, and by whose stripes we are healed. That was Fulton J. Sheen, his essay on patriotism delivered in 1938 on the Catholic Hour. I was especially interested in this essay today because, not just because it's Independence Day 2016, but also because I'm presently reading a work by Sebastian Gorka entitled Defeating Jihad, the Winnable War. Um, he sketches a way to defeat Islamic Jihad, which is coming to us, based in part on the strategy to defeat Nazism and the long game strategy to defeat communism. Not that communism is wholly gone any more than uh, cockroaches or smallpox are gone. In any event, we are in the throes of another American presidential cycle also. And the candidates, well, they and some of the issues we are now discussing in the public square remind me of some of the material in Sheen's essay. Ну, во-первых, я не мастер по таким речам. Во-вторых, стоит ли нам заниматься делами за перто аннуале della fondazione dell'impero e prima giornata della festa dedicata all'esercito Avete assistito ad una memorabile parata militare. Deutsche Männer und Frauen, in wenigen Tagen hat sich innerhalb der deutschen Volksgemeinschaft eine Umwälzung vollzogen. You know, it's very good to listen to the, to the past, listen to our forebears, especially the more recent past, living memory past, because the roots of our challenges today lie precisely therein. Without knowing what happened then and what, chart, what, what course people charted then, we can't easily chart a course in the dangerous waters we are now navigating. What do they say about those who do not pay attention to the past? Well, I fear, my friends, that we are not paying enough attention to the past. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's home from work we go. Hi-ho, hi-ho, Thank you for listening. This is Father John Zulsdorf. Until the next time, please pray for me, as I will for you. Hi-ho.